Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. Uh, this week, we are looking at Lent again. We're just doing a quick little two-week series in it. I wanted to do two weeks um, because six weeks felt long, um, and then, but one week did not quite feel like enough. It's easy. It was fun last week to get to share with Jen and talk about the practices of Lent, talking about uh, abstaining and engaging. What are we going to give up? What are we going to replace with? Um, It was fun to get to to talk through that. And it's easy enough to let a Sunday like that come and go. Maybe you committed to something, maybe you didn't. And then we just kind of move on with with our lives. But Lent is intended to be a reset of sorts. It's intended to be a reset. One of the pushbacks I hear about Lent with the fasting and repentance and what, what all goes along with it, it's like, well, I could do that any time of the year. True. Sure. Are you? <laughs> are we? Lent is a, a moment to get to... Um, Remember the rhythm of repentance. Remember that it is meant to be woven into our daily lives throughout the year. It's not just a one-time thing. But, but giving specific attention to it in this moment, that allows us then, um, it, it allows us to forge a new like heart pattern, Right? And the heart pattern of repentance, of saying, I am wrong, I receive the forgiveness of Christ, and I turn my life back, back to God. That is not a one-time thing. That is not a once-a-year thing. That is a regular rhythm of our life. And Lent gives us an opportunity to think specifically about how we might want to do that, how we might want uh, to work that into our lives. So that's what we're going to think about today. Not just the specific practices of Lent but perhaps more so the purpose behind them. You may have gone along with what we did last week, picked up some new practice or some new thing to to fast from for uh, this 40-day period, and then gotten a little bit into this week and been like, this is difficult, why am I doing this? What What is happening right now? And so it's important for us to think about how are we filling the fasting space? The fasting that we do in our lives, it creates an emptiness of a sort. We abstain from something, and there is then a gap there. And what will we then do with that gap? Will we just fill it with something else of equal or lesser value? Or will we, with some intentionality, use this time to move our lives more Godward, more towards God, to let our attention be turned more towards him. The operative word for Lent, one of the key practices of this season, uh, all throughout the history of the church, has been repentance. Repentance helps us not let fasting just be 
fasting. It helps us move it in a particular direction. Because when we fast, certain things start to come up in our hearts, certain things, if we allow, if we allow it to, we allow um, the Lord to do his work within us in that moment. Certain things start to come up in our lives, and we have this opportunity in that moment to say, I'm going to do something with that, or I'm not going to do something with that. And repentance is me saying, I am going to do something with this conviction, with this something that God is laying on my heart. To, to illustrate this, that there's really two movements in repentance, two, two movements revolved in repentance. It's turning from sin, and it's turning to God. It might sound simple, but it ought to be marking this particular season, so then we could get in the habit of it marking our daily lives before Christ. Uh, I want to use two passages this morning to kind of illustrate this idea of repentance. First, turning away from our sin. We're going to look at Psalm 51. So if you want to start turning there. Psalm 51. There's all different genres of psalms. I think this summer we'll spend some time in the book of Psalms. I always feel like summer's a good time to, to hang out in the Psalms. So we'll, we'll talk more about the specifics of genres and the poetry behind all of it. Um, but for now, just think of Psalm 51 as a psalm of repentance. That is the primary theme. That's the primary thing that is going on here. The psalmist says this, starting in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me or always before me. Notice that the psalmist mentions their sin and then cannot get another line before appealing to, calling upon the characteristics of this God that they know. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. The psalmist is starting from a point of saying, I don't have a whole lot to bring to the table here. And actually what I do have to bring to the table, I need you to fix. I need you to work on. I need you to heal. I need you to clean out. And so I'm going to appeal to who I know you to be. Because of your unfailing love, God, would you have mercy on me? Because of your great compassion. We cannot overlook this little detail that when the psalmist thinks about God, this is the first thing that comes to mind. His deep, deep love for us. His deep, deep love. That is the fundamental posture of God towards the world. For God so loved the world that he gave. It's not that God was frustrated. For God so loved you can skip down a few verses to, to verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop. And here, this is a reference to the Passover feast, right? Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Anybody, anybody been up skiing in the last, last few weeks? Anybody at all? Yeah, me neither. I, but I see pictures of friends who go, who go up and gosh, it's pretty up there. But we know, we know what it looks like. 
There is, no, there is no reality quite like a fresh fallen snow. And the psalmist says, I want the purity of that scene to be the way that my heart looks. And I know that it's not how it looks right now, but I know that when God is done with me, that is how it can look. Not something that I can do on my own, but something that God does for me. Cleanse me with hyssop. I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Notice the end result. Notice the most natural result of God, of God meeting us in our broken places. The natural result is not shame and embarrassment on our part, but what? What does he say? Let me hear joy and gladness. Joy and gladness. Mark the moment. Mark the situation that God sees us at our worst. Because when God sees us at our worst, he moves towards us in affection. We don't know that very well. If we were to just use our horizontal relationships, our human relationships, sometimes we let those relationships filter into the way that we see God. But God does not operate that way. He does not operate in that way. He sees us in our lowest point and moves towards us in affection. And then the high point of this particular passage, these three verses 10, 11, and 12. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Notice the interplay here between language about something brand new and something being redone. Create in me a new Heart. Create in me a pure heart. That's a, that's a first-time kind of situation. That's a first-time sort of command and request there. The psalmist, years into a deep relationship with God, says, I need a brand new heart in this moment. How does that come about? Through these beautiful words of renewal. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Restore to me, again, the joy of my salvation. The joy of being clean before God. New hearts, restoration, and renewal are what happens when God is on the move towards us. Uh, commenting on the season of Lent, I, I, felt, I found this to be a particularly helpful little quote. Jen actually sent this quote along to me this week. One of the things about preparing for a message is you, you read all this stuff and it's great and it's helpful and then invariably, like two days later, you find the perfect quote for the thing that you did last week and that's just kind of how life is for somebody who teaches regularly. Uh, but Jen found this quote for me to get to pass along for this week. N.T. Wright says this, and it sounds perfect, it sounds like a perfect commentary on the verses we just read. Lent is a time for discipline, for confession, for honesty, 
Not because God is mean or fault-finding or finger-pointing, but because he wants us to know the joy of being cleaned out, ready for all the good things he now has in store. If we're honest, we can be pretty resistant to the idea of confession. And sometimes, if resistance to confession takes up residence in our heart, we may, after a while, find that we are pretty distant from the life that Wright is talking about here. The joy of being cleaned out, ready for all the good that he now has in store. We wonder that joy that we read about in scripture, that we sing about in a song from, from time to time, that you hear in the voice and the tone of a friend, that, that joy is, is not true of me right now, and I wonder why that is. And sometimes it is this difficult step of confessing, of saying the same thing as God about the things that I have done wrong, knowing that he will then meet us in that moment. There is joy on the other side of that, but if we resist, if we are unwilling to take the difficult steps of confession, uh, there may be a piece of joy. There will, in fact, be a piece of joy that God wants for us that will not actually be available to us. We have all of our nice reasons for resisting confessing sin. We have a desire to maintain the status quo just in our own lives, but also in our like little social ecosystems as well. We don't want, to, we don't want things to fluctuate too much. If I, if I come clean about X, then what are the consequences going to be? And that, that what are the consequences going to be can keep us from doing some good heart work. That will, in fact, while there will be, in many cases, consequences that do not feel great, there is then a result that is purer and better, more difficult perhaps. There is a fuller life on the other side of being, of being able to come clean. There's a desire to maintain the status quo. There's a discomfort with calling sin, sin, right? We can completely undo, not experience. Uh, we can completely unravel the process of repentance if we don't have the right starting point. And that right starting point is saying, I am going to say that what God calls sin is sin. And that is uncomfy for us. It's uncomfy for us in a lot of different ways. We are pushed over and over and over again by most of the voices that we hear today from society at large, from culture around us, from the folks that we let speak into our lives, either through the stuff that we read, the stuff that we listen to. We are pushed towards versions of Christianity, of, of faith, that take a little bit of Jesus that is convenient to our worldview, and then we pack it in, we pack in what we like, 
around the sides. So we take a few parts of Jesus' moral stances that we enjoy, and then we overlay it with progressive politics and say, I, I want, I, I believe Jesus agrees with me on these things. I agree with Jesus on these things, and I think that he agrees with me on the rest. We can do that with progressive politics on one side. We can do it with conservative politics on the other side. I believe what Jesus said when he was flipping over tables. When we start to overlay, and I use politics just as an example because it's the most immediate one, like right in our faces, um, and I um, will keep doing that, just so you know, especially in an election year. We got to be so careful. We got to be so careful that other values do not become the filter through which we read Scripture. We are going to hold to this. We are going to hold to God's word. Because it is living and active, and it is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces between bone and marrow. It is alive and active and has something to say today. Not just the parts that we like, but the parts that we don't. We have Two, if we are ever going to get on board with this confession and repentance thing, we have to say the same thing as God, and we have to call what is sin, sin. Uh, we're resistant to confessing sin because it, uh, in general, does not feel good, right? Um, there is a cathartic element to it. There is part of it that does indeed feel good to just, like, come clean, but there's the other part that's going, oh, my gosh, this is the inside of me, and I don't like it very much. It's okay to be honest about that. And finally, we, we have resistance to confessing sin because we're afraid of dealing with the response of others. And there's so many stories where we've, we've been burned by another. We've gone down this road before. We've done what we thought we ought to do, and the result was a bridge was burned. A relationship was severed. These are all potential consequences. But it is still then the call of God towards our lives. Will you admit, confess, and begin to repent? So will you turn from sin the way the psalmist says in Psalm 51? Have mercy on me according to your unfailing love. But then there is this critical juncture. We are not to just identify sin and say this is wrong before God. Repentance is a two-part program. It is identifying that sin, saying it out loud, confessing with God, and then taking the next step to turn towards God. To let that emptiness to let that, that gap then be filled by a turning towards God. This, this takes work. We turn from sin and then we turn towards God. To, to illustrate this point, I want to turn over to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah 55. On the... On the downslope of the book of 
Isaiah. We're talking post-exilic times, exciting times for the nation of Israel. And just as a quick reminder of the state that Israel was in in this moment, let's look at the first verse of Isaiah chapter 55. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come and buy and eat, come buy wine and milk, without money and without cost. This is God's economic plan, by the way. Whether we are comfortable with that, whether we have really uh, brilliant fiscal responses to that, this is God's plan. You come with nothing and I will provide. Israel's not in a, uh, in a great like bartering spot here, right? Got nothing to offer. Got nothing to offer. And it's in that exact moment that God says, you come to me and I will satisfy your needs. What does that coming to God look like? Well, we can skip down a few verses. Verses six and seven here. You get a series of four commands here. They pair together kind of nicely. And uh, author Walter Brueggemann points out they, they sum up the task of Lent really nicely. Seek, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn or return to the Lord, and he will have mercy on them. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Seek, call, forsake, return. This is the repentance cycle kind of laid out right for us. When God says, come to me all who are, who are thirsty and weary and come and delight yourself in the way that you will be satisfied. The next step then is to come, come closer to the Lord, to seek and to call. And that first verse strikes us as a little bit odd, right? Because it says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. There's a temporal kind of conditional aspect to that that we don't really like. God is everywhere all the time. Can't I come to the Lord at any given moment? Well, yes, that is true. But there is also this sense in which, and, and this is why we are focusing a little bit more on Lent. There is this sense in which, Jen talked about it last week, that when we give particular attention to God or we, or we do something like fasting, we're creating this space in our life and something mysterious can begin to happen in those moments where we feel God prompting us in ways that maybe we haven't for a while. And, and what the call of this passage is, like, do something with it. Don't let the call of God just like sit there. Don't let it sit there and do nothing, but do something with it. Call on the Lord while he is near. If you sense him moving towards you, you move back towards him. Don't resist. Don't, don't let go. Hold on in that tense moment of him calling you to something new and good and beautiful and scary and difficult and wonderful. Hold on. Seek 
Seek him and call him because here is the beauty. Here is the gospel of this passage. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. And we could read those first couple of verses and go, I don't like the word wicked. I don't like the word unrighteous. I don't want to be a part of that verse. I don't want that to be who I am, right? We get squeamish over these words today, right? In the same way that we get squeamish over the word sin. We get squeamish over it. We don't like to consider ourselves as wicked. Wicked is outside. It's somebody else. It's some other group. It's some other person. But this is on offer for all of us. When we think of ourselves as the wicked or as ourselves as the unrighteous, we begin... I th- I feel like the, the posture of our heart is, is one of, of cowering, uh, of being afraid, being embarrassed, being ashamed, being not so sure what is going to happen next. But the beauty of what this passage is saying is that in that moment that we cower, God is bold and moving towards us. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Cleaning out from the whole, like inside out. We just looked at a new heart and here we have thoughts and here we have actions as well. A a full on cleaning out because in that moment, what then happens? Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them. And then we turn to our God, why? For he will freely pardon. That, that, that little Hebrew phrase, freely pardon there, it's, it's so fun. The, there's this little particle, the little adjective, rav, in, uh, in Hebrew. It just means much or, or many. And Hebrew is built on kind of like a, a, a root system. And that verb, that adjective, when turned into a verb, is just rava, and that is what is used here, but then it's put in the hifil stem, which is like a verb on steroids. It is the strongest way that a verb can be used. It's as much pardon as you could possibly imagine, it's, and then more than that. That is, the, that is how God is addressing you. So much pardon, so much mercy. Brothers and sisters, when we Take advantage of that moment where we feel God drawing us in, drawing us to something new, something different, something good. We will only ever run into a God whose patience outpaces our stubbornness, a God whose mercy outlasts our obstinance, whose grace extends far beyond our worst fault, our wildest fault, a love that knows no bounds. We will only ever run into a God who is eager to accept us back. We have our reasons for not confessing. And they're not really bad reasons, really. They make sense on paper. God's grace is not about making sense on paper. It is about bringing joy to places that have no business being joyful. It is about bringing peace and goodness and healing to places where we could not possibly imagine it. And we know this. We know this. We see the parts in our lives that are, that are a little more awake than they, than they used to be. 
We see it and we know it and we know that that is God who has done that thing. Why not yield more? Why not yield more? That is what Lent is about. Brueggemann calls this passage in, uh, in Isaiah, it's a summons back to an original identity, an elemental discipline, a primal faith. Back to the core of who they were being. See, on the other side of, of exile, there was still this temptation for Israel to look like the Babylonians that they had been living among for, for so long, to carry on some of those customs and whatnot. And God was gently and over time saying, I, I want you back. I want you back fully. As difficult as that process is going to be, I want your heart in full. Commenting a little bit further on this passage. Um, Brugman gets at uh, what I would call a very timely, uh, I think, application of what is going on here. He talks about Israel and their relationship to Babylon and then how that could then affect us. The, the full quote, I think, is up. It will be up here. Uh, Brueggemann says this. He says that the crisis in the U.S. church has almost nothing to do with being liberal or conservative. It has everything to do with giving up on the faith and discipline of our Christian baptism and settling for a common, generic U.S. identity that is part patriotism, part consumerism, part violence, and part affluence. I thought I'd include that because I figured there would something, be something in that quote that would make everybody angry. Uh, so I <laughs> thought that'd be fun. And without going into detail about what he's saying there, he's not saying that patriotism is, is wrong in and of itself. He's saying it's a, it's a dangerous thing to try to be a Christian who is patriotic first and then faithful to Jesus next. That's what's, that's what's scary. It's, it's difficult, if not impossible, to be a faithful follower of Jesus in such a blatantly consumeristic society where I can just buy that or eat that, purchase that, drink that, to numb whatever I'm feeling right now. Do, do you hear the kind of life that we are that we are tempted towards. It, it, do you hear how it's, it's a numbing of all of the stuff that scripture is saying? Pay attention to that. Dig into it and then give it over to God. And, and all culture wants to say is numb it, numb it, numb it. You don't have to feel it right now. You can, you can purchase your way out of it. You can drink your way out of it. You can eat your way out of it. You can exercise your way out of it. You can do whatever you want to, to not have to feel it in that moment. And scripture says, don't do it. Don't give in. Lean into that moment. Lean into that tense moment where you feel, where the heart starts beating and you know that God is saying something to you. Lean in and know that on the other side of that is the most compassionate, gracious, heavenly Father who just wants to be with you. 
And he wants joy to mark your life. And he knows that that joy is not coming through you numbing time and time again. It just, you just won't ever get there. There is joy on offer. It's just through a little bit different path than what we think. And so I want to leave you with a frustratingly open-ended and vague question like I like to do. There's, there's, so many, there's so many parts of this sermon that I could have gotten more specific with, right? And we could think, but, but perhaps there's, there's a point for that. Perhaps there's a time and a place for that. I, I, I do believe there is. Uh, I come at this thinking, if I present this in this particular way, I don't have to do a whole lot of the work of thinking about the specifics, because I think, I think if you're here, you're probably hearing some specifics come up in your own heart and mind. If you want to help, like, help filling in the gaps sometime, I'd love to, love to talk about that, but don't, don't downplay the, the thought that has pricked in your mind over the course this last 30 minutes. And, and then think about this. How will you let the call to repentance shape your approach to this season of Lent? Whether, you're, whether you were here last week and you're all gung-ho about uh, picking a new practice and whatnot, or whether like, you were here, whether you weren't here this week and uh, last week and are here this week, whatever you're approach to Lent is going to be, how, how will you work this core piece in? Because this, this is it. This is what gets our hearts ready for Easter, is remembering that there is a reason for Easter. Remembering that there is a brokenness that God came to save, and it starts like, I am that brokenness. And that brokenness, God wants to see healed, and he wants to see it turn to joy. So how, how are you going to let, whether it's a specific practice or just some larger issue, some larger thing you're thinking about, what's, what's it going to be? As the, as the worship team comes on up, uh, I want you to take a minute and like, I, like not let yourself off the hook. Take a minute or two and just think and pray before God, I encourage you, to don't, don't put notes away, don't put anything away. Just like sit there in that moment and say, God, what would you have for me right now? Right, we're going to sing... And our prayer team is going to be up over here uh, in the corner. If you, if you feel like you want to uh, talk through, pray through some of this with, with someone, with one of them, with, with, with me, with somebody on staff, like, uh, don't, don't let yourself off the hook. And know, know that God in all of his graciousness it's just receiving you with open arms and a big old smile. Lord, would you help us get past our really good reasons for not doing this um, and help us embrace your reasons, your grace, your mercy, 
your patience, all of which outlasts and outpaces our own resistance and our hardness of heart. I thank you that you meet us in this place. Thank you that you meet us in these heart spaces, these hard heart spaces. Would you give us the courage and the faith to believe that your grace and your joy is actually on the other side of love leaning into these things? May we not cower, but may we come with courage to your throne of grace. In Jesus' name.